So, welcome to episode 85, episode 85 in our podcast. So, um, I want to begin by talking about what promises to be a circus maximus in our next um, election cycle, our next presidential election cycle. Um, there, on the Democratic side, we have what appears to be a race to the hard left, uh, not just on economics, but on life issues, just a race to the hard left. There was just a vote in Congress on um, uh, if a child survives a botched abortion and the, the child survives uh, a measure that would protect that child's life. Now, let me, I need to do something. Um, I'll state the uh, thing I'm after here, and then make some parenthetical comments, and then come back. Um, all of the announced candidates uh, for the nominate for the Democratic nomination, all of them voted against uh, sparing the life of a child that survived a botched abortion attempt. All of them voted. I think there were three Democrats that voted to save the life of the child. Now, any. Christian, anybody who and any person with any kind of right side up moral standing knows that there's no difference between a, uh, a, you know, killing a child that is already born infanticide because the child being killed at this place on the table as opposed to that place on the table. Um, So anybody who's good with uh, abortion at all, in principle, has signed has signed on to infanticide. And there are a number of people who just cannot be prevailed upon to, to see that. Um, and so we have to, um, re- re- Christians have to remember that always. So if someone says, uh, if someone says, I believe that it's okay to take a child's life at eight and a half months, late term abortion, but I'm going to vote for protection for that child if that child successfully runs the gauntlet and that child makes it out into our, our space alive, then I'm going to vote to uphold the dignity, life and dignity of that uh, child. Well, no, <laughs> you're, say, you're simply saying that you're willing to murder Herbert on Monday and unwilling to murder him on Friday. There's absolutely no moral, dist- you know, the, the person who stands against infanticide, but is for late-term abortion or for abortion of any kind, that person is simply a jumble of contradictions. But the thing that's striking about this is that uh, all the Democratic contenders voted to not protect a newborn baby. And the, the, the nurses or the doctor can bring that baby out into the, under the fluorescent lights and finish the job. Okay, that's what that's what the people who are going to get whoever's the whoever the nominee is, that person is going to get close to fifty percent of the vote of the popular vote in the next presidential election cycle. There's not going to be any kind of pro-life candidate of any pro-lifer on the Democratic side nom- nominated. Period. Which mean and and the election is going to be relatively close. So the vote for the Democrat 
the bloodthirsty party, the carnage party, the crimson flood uh, party, that party is going to get about half of all Americans voting for them. And they're going to they're competing with each other to see how ghoulish and bloodthirsty they can get, how, how far to the left they can go. And they're doing the same thing uh, in economics. With their, They're trying to vie with one another. Uh, in a previous episode, I mentioned the Green New Deal that uh, Congresswoman um, AOC proposed, the, the sort of the economic insanity measure where they're saying, okay, this is a crisis. This is the moral equivalent of war. We've got to kill all the cows and we've got to um, outlaw the internal combustion engine and we have to outlaw airplanes and so forth. Well, as Ben Shapiro recently argued, why, if it's the moral equivalent of war, if climate change is going to kill us all, if we're all going to die because of climate change, and it really is war, then we need to be doing far more than killing our cows. We need to be bombing coal plants in China and India. Uh, all the coal plants in, in places like that are um, going to kill us all. So it's, it's simple self-defense, right? right? But nobody's going to do that because they don't mean it. They're, lying. they're, they're telling lies and they, they know they're telling lies. So back to the um, presidential race. If we look at the positions, the economic positions and the life positions and the sexuality positions, the transgender stuff, just all the Looney Tunes stuff on the left, it's crazy time over there, right? It's crazy time. And uh, many people say, yeah, but do you think, um, I mean, we've got our own crazy time over here on the right, don't we? Uh, uh, The the Republican Donald Trump in the... uh, in the Oval Office is, he's doing, he, you know, he tweets erratically. He says, he says in, indefensible things. He pops off, right? Well, yes, he does. Um, uh, Donald Trump does, says and does that sort of thing. And part of the reason I didn't vote for him the first go-round was because I thought, well, I don't, there's enough there to make me not really believe him when he says he's pro-life or when he says, uh, you know, whatever he professes uh, that he wants to do. But he's been in office for two years now. And even though he talks erratically and he says crazy stuff and he he pops off in uh, ways that he shouldn't, nevertheless, um, sanity appears to be prevailing on a number of fronts, you know, in the appointment of judges and, and um, you know, it's the sky isn't falling and and if we transplanted Venezuela, uh, transplanted all the policies of Venezuela into the state of Illinois or into California, they'd feel right at home and they would have precisely the same effects. So you, you have um, on the Republican side, and I'm saying, this, I'm saying this as a disinterested sociological observer of human politics— uh, on the left, it's crazy at the top, it's crazy in the rhetoric, and it's crazy all the way down. It's crazy from top to bottom. On the right, it's crazy at the top and not crazy all the way down. It's crazy at the top, and yet sensible things continue to happen. Now, I'm not saying this as an ardent partisan. I'm just saying 
that if I look over to the right, the world is not ending. If I look over to the left, man. So, continuing um, episode eighty-five of the podcast, uh, my book review here is um, is a book written by my wife, uh, Nancy Wilson, and this is uh, the, the title of this book is "Learning Contentment." Learning Contentment. Now, if I remember correctly, I read it in manuscript a few years ago, but then I just recent it's now available in Audible and. I uh, just recently um, went through it again in uh, listening to it, and uh, I want to. Co- this is a fantastic book. Um, one of the things that Nancy has done over the years, and and let me um, let me say as a, an up close observer of all the things that Nancy has had to be content about, I can say that she is someone who who implements and practices what she talks about. All the, all the things she's talking about here is, is, is not uh, advice from afar. It's not a sob sister column. Uh, she is encouraging Christian women everywhere to do, um, do what she does. She, lives, she actually uh, lives this way and lives this way despite various uh, significant uh, challenges. All right. you, might, you might have guessed that having to live with me, right? So uh, her, um, w- one of the things she's done over the years is uh, she is very much a Puritan and a uh, student of Puritan writers. Her, uh, I don't know who her favorite Puritan writer is. It, it, it would come down to either Jeremiah Burroughs or uh, Thomas Watson. And both Watson and Burroughs um, wrote books on contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote uh, a book called "The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment," and um, and Thomas Watson wrote, "Oh, what's the name of that book? The Art of Divine Contentment, I think." So there's a there's and, and Banner of Truth publishes both of those: the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment and the Art of Divine Contentment. I, I think it is by Watson. And uh, what, one of the things that Nancy has done is she's studied these uh, men. She's read them over the years, studied them, and she's led uh, different uh, book studies for Christian women through these books. So she's she's taught uh, she's taught uh, Burroughs to Christian women. She's taught Watson to Christian women. She's internalized a lot of their principles, and she uh, re- reorganized them, put them all together in her her own words and her own organization, taking the scriptural principles that Watson and Burroughs were drawing on, and um, laid them all out uh, in modern English for the modern Christian woman. And we have a lot. We have a lot of challenges, and we have a lot of temptations, and a lot of um, excuses offered to us to become to become discontent with the lot that God has assigned to us. But the requirements of Scripture don't alter according to the century you live in when you're reading the Scripture. So if, uh, um, if we're told to be anxious for nothing, uh, that means the same thing, whether you're re- reading it in the 3rd century or the 10th century or the 19th century or the 21st century. We should be anxious for nothing. We should uh, cast all our cares on Him because He cares for us. And that's constantly, always, and forever true. Discontent 
multiplies, contentment grows. Discontent multiplies. If you if you become discontent with something, it's amazing how rapidly you can become discontented with a bunch of other things, uh, one after another. Um, contentment grows and dis- dis- discontent metastatizes and contentment grows. This is a great book, Learning Contentment by Nancy Wilson. Uh, that's, that is uh, put out, published by Canon Press. So we come now to Hamartiology for episode 85 of the podcast. And remember, uh, last time we looked at a number of uses of the word anomia, and we're continuing with that. So we're going to look at three other renderings of anomia. The word, as tr- the word is translated as unrighteousness in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? There's your word. And what communion hath light with darkness? And then in um, in 1 John 3, 4, it says the word is used, uh, in, in 1 John 3, 4, the word is used twice in order to give us a very succinct definition of sin itself and is rendered as transgression of the law. So whoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So whoever commits sin practices or does lawlessness or unrighteousness. For sin is lawlessness. God don't never He's God. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.